Part 1, Chapter 3 of Canada's Hundred Days with the Canadian Corps from Amiens to Mons, August 8th to November 11th, 1918. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Mike Vendetti, Canyon City, Colorado, MikeVendetti.com. Canada's Hundred Days by John Levisy. Part 1. Chapter 3 From Eris to Amiens The Canadian Corps was fortunate that it had in Sir Arthur Currie a chief it both loved and trusted, a brilliant citizen-soldier. It was proud to follow anywhere, but its greatest asset lay in the unconquerable spirit of the rank and file. Bred to free open skies, adaptable to changing circumstances, seasoned by many battles, inured to hardship submitting willingly to stern discipline, thus transmuting these clerks, artisans, lawyers, farmers, railway men, lumberjacks, and the like, into as fine a body of professional troops this war has produced, but troops that also happily sought, only in victory, the hour to lay aside the sword and return to the plowshare. And now before them was a splendid adventure. On July 1st, the 2nd Canadian Division was at last relieved from the line, the 3rd Canadian Division taking its place. It had passed under orders of the 6th Corps on March 28th, relieving the 3rd British Division in the Nouvelle Vitasse sector, just south of Arras, and on the night of March 31st, extended its front southwards by relieving the left battalion of the Guards Division. The front held extended from the south of the Cohil River, east of Boiseleuse St. Mark, to the slopes of Telegraph Hill, 6,000 yards. The 2nd Canadian Division held this front for an uninterrupted period of 92 days, during which time it repulsed a series of local attacks and carried out no less than 27 raids, capturing three officers, 101 other ranks, 22 machine guns, and two trench mortars, and inflicting severe casualties on the enemy. The aggressive attitude adopted by this division during those critical days, and under such adverse conditions, had a most excellent effect on the troops generally, and it certainly reduced to the lowest point the fighting value of two German divisions, namely the 26th Reserve Division and the 185th Division. On June 30th, when the 2nd Canadian Division was about to leave the 3rd Army Command, General Bang sent the following letter to Major General Sir Henry Burstall. I cannot allow the 2nd Canadian Division to leave the 3rd Army without expressing my appreciation of the splendid work it has done. Knowing the division of old, I had great anticipation of offensive action and thorough field defense work. These anticipations were more than realized, and the 2nd Canadians have now added another page of lasting record to their history. I can only hope that they are as proud of their work as I was of again, having them under my command. It returned under orders of the Canadian Corps on Dominion Day, but its rest was brief, for on July 6th the Canadian Corps was warned to be prepared to relieve the 17th Corps in the line, being released from General Headquarters Reserve on July 10th and completing the relief by July 15th. Disposition at that time was as follows. Headquarters, Canadian Corps, ends. 1st Army Area, 2nd Canadian Division in the Line Telegraph Hills Section, 
First Canadian Division in the line, Tuenchi Fampak Section. Fourth Canadian Division in the line, Gavarel Opry Section. Under Sixth Corps, Third Army Area. Third Canadian Division in the line, Nouvelle Vitesse Section. The general policy adapted was to foster in the mind of the enemy the idea of a pending attack in order to retain or draw his reserves into this area, and consequently active patrolling was carried out by day and night, and raids were constantly engaged in. The artillery executed a vigorous program of harassing fire and counter-battery work. From prisoners it was learned that the enemy expected an attack and that troops had been frequently rushed forward to defend the Drocourt-Kiant line. On July 20, the Corps commander was informed of the plan for the Amiens offensive. Then came the admirable piece of work that led the enemy to believe the Corps was going to Flanders. To quote Sir Douglas Haig, preliminary instructions to prepare to attack east of Amiens at an early date had been given to the 4th Army commander, General Sir Henry Rawlison, on July 13th and on July 28th. The French First Army, under General Debney, was placed by Marshal Foch under my orders for this operation. Further to strengthen my attack, I decided to reinforce the British Fourth Army with the Canadian Corps, and also with the two British divisions, which were then held in readiness astride the Somme, in order to deceive the enemy and ensure the maximum effect of a surprise attack. Elaborate precautions were taken to mislead him as to our intentions and to conceal our real purpose. Instructions of a detailed character were issued to the formations concerned, calculated to make it appear that a British attack in Flanders was imminent. Canadian battalions were put into line on the Kemmel Front, where they were identified by the enemy. Corps headquarters were prepared and casualty clearing stations were erected in conspicuous positions in this area. So much depended on the secrecy of the movement and in the deception of the enemy that the precautions taken were very elaborate. On July 21st, says Sir Arthur Curie, I attended a conference at 4th Army Headquarters where the operations contemplated were discussed. The 4th Army commander dwelt upon the importance of secrecy. The operation, as outlined at the conference, was of limited scope and was designed to relieve the pressure on Amiens and free the Amiens-Paris railway line, thus improving the situation at the junction of the French and British armies. A large number of tanks were to be made available for this operation. The methods for maintaining secrecy and misleading the enemy were discussed. I pointed out that I had been considering a scheme for the capture of Orange Hill, east of Arras, and it was agreed it would help materially to deceive everybody if preparations for this scheme were still continued. The following day a conference of divisional commanders and members of the Corps staff was held at Canadian Corps headquarters, where the outline of the scheme for the capture of Orange Hill was explained, and the divisional commanders and heads of branches and services concerned were asked to make all preparations for this attack as quickly as possible. It was stated that tanks would be available for the operation, and it was therefore essential that all concerned should familiarize themselves with the combined tactics of infantry and tanks. I explained that demonstrations had been arranged with the Australians, and that it was my wish that the greatest possible number of officers should witness them. In the meantime, 
The enemy was to be harassed on the whole Canadian Corps front by artillery and machine-gun fire, and numerous raids were to be carried out to secure positive identifications, thus leading the enemy to anticipate an early attack in force. Further conferences were held from time to time at the 4th Army Headquarters, where plans were made for the necessary reliefs and moves, and the necessity of the maintenance of secrecy emphasized. On July 26th, the 4th Army commander stated that the plans originally put forward, and which had been approved by the commander-in-chief, had been modified by Marshal Folk, in that the 1st Army would now cooperate with the 4th British Army and be responsible for the right flank of the attack. On July 27th, the general boundaries and the objectives of the first day were fixed, and movements of the Canadian Corps and tank units were arranged. It was decided notably that units were to leave their areas without knowing their destinations, and that it would be given out freely that the Canadian Corps was moving to the Ypres front, where the Second Army expected a German attack. With a view to deceiving the enemy, two battalions of the Canadian Corps were to be put in the line in the Camel area, and two Canadian casualty clearing stations were to be moved to the Second Army area. Canadian wireless and power buzzer stations were to be dispatched to the Camel sector, and messages were to be sent worded so as to permit the enemy to decipher the identity of the senders. Meanwhile, the Canadian divisions were busy preparing their scheme of attack on Orange Hill, and numerous tanks were ostensibly assembled in the vicinity of St. Paul. On July 29th, the 17th Corps was ordered by First Army to relieve the Canadian Corps in the line during the nights of July 31st through August 2nd, reliefs to be completed by daylight on August 2nd. This Army order stated plainly that the Canadian Corps would be prepared to move to Second Army, which, as indicated above, was then holding the northern section of the British front. The 27th Canadian Infantry Battalion and the 4th Canadian Mounted Rifle Battalion, respectively, from the 2nd and 3rd Canadian Divisions, were moved by strategical train to Second Army area where they were placed in the line. They did not rejoin their divisions until August 6th. On this day, July 29th, the Canadian Divisional Commanders were personally informed of the operations which were to take place on the 4th Army front and they were instructed not to discuss the operations with any of their subordinate commanders. On July 30th, Canadian Corps headquarters moved from Molles Vendame, and the transfer of the Canadian Corps from 1st Army area to 4th Army area began. When this move was well under way, and in order to continue to deceive our troops as to their eventual employment, a letter issued by 1st Army was repeated to all Canadian divisions and communicated by them to their formations and units stating that the Canadian Corps was being transferred to the 4th Army area, where it would be held in General Headquarter Reserve, and be prepared in case of attack to, one, move south at short notice to assist the French on the Reims-Salon's front, two, support either the 1st French Army or the 4th British Army. It has seemed worthwhile to describe these measures at length, for in the result they furnished the greatest surprise attack of the war, there were some curious developments certain foreign officers attached for liaison purposes to the Canadian Corps hurried north to secure good billets at the new Corps headquarters. An indignant message came to British General Headquarters from the Belgian General Headquarters staff to the effect that the Canadian Corps was being moved to Belgian territory without notice of any kind, whereas common courtesy 
should have suggested that the Belgian army be notified in order that it might be in position to make arrangements for the comfort and well-being of the Canadian troops. Necessarily, the destination was a profound secret, and officers of even high rank within the Corps who knew it might be counted on the fingers. One by one the divisions moved, roundabout routes being followed, and until it developed the general direction was south, the men, for the most part, thought they were going back to the salient. Thus, at the end of July, the 3rd Canadian Division came out of the line and moved west to the vicinity of Dulens, where it entrained under sealed orders, battalion commanders not even knowing whether they were going north, south, east, or west. As an example of how it was done, the 8th Brigade Canadian Mounted Rifles detrained at Prozul and marched that night to Herbultcourt, where they lay hid next day, marching the following night to the Bois de Vivos, west of Avar, arriving on August 2nd, the rest of the division being behind them. On that night they moved up to the General's Trench system, behind the Australian support line, where there was accommodation for a large body of troops. Absolutely no movement was permitted during the day, and not a single man being allowed out of the trenches and dugouts, except for reconnaissance. The 7th and 9th Brigades joined the 8th on August 6th. All roads were packed, the brigades taking five hours to get from Beauvais to General's Wood, an hour and a half's march. Even the confidential men employed with the Corps General Staff were equally mystified. Corps headquarters was at Duzon's when early in the morning of July 30th. They were ordered to prepare for an immediate move. There was much speculation. Some declared it was to Camel others to Sosons, while one ingenious theory was that the Canadian Corps was to be shipped to Zeebrugge, there to fall on the enemy rear in Flanders. The long train of sixty or seventy lorries moved off with no other guide than a transport officer on a motorcycle, who declined to talk. That evening Corps headquarters was established at Molens Vedim, better known to the Canadian soldier as Molly Be Damned, a dozen miles due west of Amiens. There followed a week of strenuous preparation. Red tabs are not popular in the Army, but no one who watched the staff officers of the Canadian Corps, then and through the overcharged weeks to follow, could have anything but admiration and wonder. There is no Sunday in the Army, and there are no specified hours, except that a man works until he can see no more catches a few hours sleep, and goes at it again. Fourteen hours a day, week in and week out, was quite normal. In active operations, officers of the general staff and A and Q branches would work right through the twenty-four hours. All had not the wonderful physique of the corps commander, whom one left studying battle reports at two in the morning and heard at breakfast that he had been in the field at six o'clock. It was a breathless bustle at Molly Be Damned, not least so for the staff of the Canadian artillery, which had to work out in detail the ranges and barrage of the great opening show. Then the intelligence branch had the collection and coalition of last-minute information, whether from our aircraft or by prisoners. Three clerks of the general staff worked in a tent all by themselves. All were under canvas, and it rained a good deal, engaged day and night in copying out operation orders, which, in great detail, must all be prepared and in the hands of the various commanders. These three clerks, for a whole week, led the life of Trappist monks, refusing converse with their fellows, 
Finally, about noon of a Thursday, Come, Sergeant, tell us when the show is to open. That it's a good fellow. One Wheedler petitioned. The show opened at twenty minutes past four this morning. And, by now, we are six thousand yards inside the Bosch lines. On August 7th, the first echelon of Corps headquarters moved to Dury, a village on the Paris Road, three miles south Amiens. A faint buzzing went round among the messes that there would be an attack within the next day or two. Friday was generally selected. That afternoon, the Corps commander, Sir Arthur Currie, had a talk with the two Canadian correspondents. Before him was a large-scale map and the barrage map. It was all very clear and lucid. We take up our line here. Our first objective is there. Zero hour was named, and this, of course, a dead secret from all but the privileged few. Our final objective for the day over there, constituting a world record for a first day's advance. One was struck with the speaker's simplicity and his quiet confidence and certainty. He, of course, knew the Canadian Corps and what it could do. It was a finely tempered weapon. It had been proved before in the tightest corners in the Somme at Vinny, and more recently at Pachechandel, where it had gone in and conquered, gone in against the better judgment and advice of the corps commander himself, but gone in where others had failed to win. And now, added to this war experience, were the long, patient, intensive months of preparation, the knowledge that the artillery support was to be the greatest known, and that all units went into the field actually over strength, with ample reinforcements on the spot to make good casualties. He knew his men all abundantly. He knew them and trusted them. He knew, too, their leaders, from the divisional commanders down to the platoons, and had the assurance there would be no botching. And yet, when all this was admitted, there was something astonishing in the calm certainty, for our intelligence people had it straight the enemy, was massed on the very sector for a new offensive, had not but the day before attacked in force the Third Corps immediately north of Somme. In all the history of the West Front, nothing so ambitious had been proposed, let alone accomplished. The biggest things in which the Canadian Corps had been engaged were but small affairs besides this, and then there was the memory of other shows that had promised great things, but had turned out but half-successes or flat failures. Had we but had the courage to admit as much, but confidence of that kind is infectious. After the talk was over, we agreed on our luck in being in for the biggest thing yet. End of Part 1, Chapter 3 Recording by Mike Vendetti, Canyon City, Colorado, MikeVendetti.com